Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rulemakers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. International flavor today, as we always do. American venues, international venues, mega events. And we're here, as usual, to discuss all of this with the executive editor for Digital, Dan Colarusso. How are you, sir? Rick, I'm doing well. How is lovely Washington, D.C. this morning? Well, everybody is destined to take their rightly position in the inauguration. And uh, obviously, we're talking, our theme today is about mega events. And there ain't nothing more mega than this particular event here. There are mayors. uh, Well, this might be a minor mega if you look at the entertainment and the expected crowds. But yes, it, it, it falls under the mega category, I guess. The interesting thing is, as you know, I'm involved with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We'll get some mm. interviews down the road with all of that. But they are here, like everybody else, to enjoy the spectacle. But again, the most important issue is capturing the dollar and the facilities to do it. So thank you for that segue. We have an interesting perspective out west, the San Jose Sharks are looking at sales history and high-tech as a way to maximize the value of arenas. And and as it is everywhere, not only do you want to put people in seats, but you want to put people in seats at the right price level. 16 season ticket prices jumped to 32 different levels at the SAP Center. And what was at $137 or $222 per game, for example, the best seats right behind the glass, are now 300 to 400 And the reason they are is because they understand that people see them as premium seats and they can afford it. So it looks like a new way to price seats at arenas all across the world. Doesn't it feel like the airline industry? Remember before there was Expedia? Um, airline, I guess even, even now, airline seats are priced a little bit on availability, but also a little bit on who's buying them. And I, I think that's kind of an interesting development on the, on the idea of squeezing more out of your live events. This is really fascinating. This goes beyond the gold, silver, platinum game, right? This goes to the seat. Um, How transparent is it? I mean, can I see if I'm a a San Jose Sharks fan and I go to my San Jose Sharks ticket website, can I see the price levels very clearly about what seats I'm overpaying for and (laughs) what seats I can get in the bargain? Yes, just like you can on some airlines see that the seats by the exit row are a little more expensive, independent of first class. You can see whether the club seats give you more service in an arena and you sit in a suite. Traditionally, it was the suites on the 30-yard line cost less than the suites on the 50. Mm. Now, it's much different than that. As I just said, 32 price levels for next season. That's amazing to me. That's 32, I mean... You know, for the average sports fan, you know, it's yet another piece of calculus we have to do to enjoy a game. But it makes total sense if you can control it and you could capture the market in the way that Uber might capture you at in a surge price. Or, um, again, Expedia might capture you trying to fly to, you know, Houston for the Super Bowl. If they can capture you on that kind of micro basis... That makes the live event another cudgel to, to squeeze some revenue, but also enables them to sell amenities in specific parts of the arena, right? Yes, that amenity sales revenue cudgel is even more diverse because it's not just the 32 different price levels, but then you vary it by 
the variable ticket pricing that a lot of people are doing. For example, the Blue Jays just unveiled mm, that, right. and a game against a non-rival who has been terrible will cost less for the same seat than the New York Yankees, in your case, the New York Mets. And your question was a great one, which is, if you want to price hunt, shelf space is like seat space is like I've got a bargain. And my bargain is, if I'm a Shark fan, I can sit at a certain location on a certain date at a certain time, and I can get a good deal. And so right. that increases the value of tickets. But not only that, as I said, it creates a structure and a template that may lead the way all across the globe, SAP Center leading the way. Let's go down the coast a little bit. <laughs> we go to San Diego. So Chargers officially moving to L.A. They're playing at the StubHub Center, 30,000 spectators over the next couple of years, uh, a massive downgrade as far as seats, but it may be the smallest stadium move because of supply and demand. They're moving into their $2.6 billion stadium they're sharing with the Rams. Their logo is not a hit to some people. It's a hit to others. People in San Diego are now talking about moving companies, refusing to move them, even though somebody's going to move them. And there are issues about what happens in San Diego. Well, of course, some people say, well, you should have thought about that a while ago, because when you lose a team, it's awful hard to get it back, although you can. So what's your take on this entire franchise musical chair issue? You know, I, I think the, the same factors are at play in this move is every move, right? Franchise, on the bubble, successful or not, I'm sure profitable. But again, in terms of a, a major NFL franchise, you don't think of them like you think of the Packers or the Cowboys or the Giants. But a significant franchise, significant region. And I think it's, it's a minor move in terms of that. But it is an interesting, I think, on a micro move for the Chargers franchise. I, I think it's telling. I wonder, you know, they screwed up the logo. They had to come out with a second new logo, right? I mean, they came out with one. And it was panned, I guess. And they said, oh, that was just temporary. They had to go to another one. But it just kind of shows that the, the franchise has to really define itself now. When it gets to L.A., all of this is behind it. How are the Chargers going to not only define themselves as a franchise, make them stand out, but also stand out against, I'd rather go watch the Rams, maybe, as the Rams have more high draft picks in the next few years. I think it's an interesting move for the Chargers. Financially, for the NFL, again, not earth-shattering because they're just moving, what, 90 minutes away in traffic? Uh, yeah, oh, or, or 90 minutes away in traffic. Or four hours. hours. Four hours. But, right, right, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but the bottom line of all of this is that it's good for the consumer. Uh, just like if you have another car company entering into a price point to compete, having two teams in that stadium may not be great for both. They will sell their own suites and their own seats, which means they've got to put their own product on the field. I'm surprised, personally, right. they didn't unveil a Southern California Chargers logo and try to appeal to the two or three fans that aren't mad yet and win them back in San Diego and then Orange County. When you think about it, we had 13 million of local money contributed to local charities, 1.3 million meals to San Diego Food Bank. There's a lot of that stuff that people are going to say, good riddance, you guys, where have you been? And the bottom line is it's a much bigger issue than just you know, a Saturn plant moving from one place to another. It is the heart and soul of a community. Right. And one thing before we go, the other question that I'm waiting to see answered is can L.A., traditionally a big but slightly indifferent sports market, support two teams, neither of which right now has much momentum on the field? Two teams plus two NBA teams plus right. two NHL teams plus La La plus entertainment, all of that. So we'll have to see how that all shakes out down the road. The bottom line is Chargers have to pay a territorial 
uh, remission uh, to the NFL. They also have to share in the rent. They don't get as much revenue, but they do get stability long, short-term, and a lot of revenue long-term. So it's a long-term stability play for the Spanos family, who put 15 to 20 years into trying to get a new stadium, and they ran out of luck. So, right, right. all right, let's go. Let's go a little farther west before we go down under. Jack Sock, 24 years old, may be the next American great hope on the tennis court. He's ranked 20th. He needs three wins at the Australian Open, which started this week, to supplant John Isner as the highest-ranking American. He's won significant dollars. And America obviously needs a great new challenge on the men and women's side, don't you think? No, I don't think America needs it. I think the world needs it. Uh, Ameri- look, American major, like the, the U.S. Open, is a global event. And, um, and New Yorkers, because that crowd is more sophisticated than you get in, in other cities, it's more of a global city, you get loyalties to Federer, you get loyalties to Jokovic, you get loyalties to, to uh, uh, any host of foreign-born players. But I think having an American on the scene at the Australian Open, at the French Open, at Wimbledon. There's a certain rivalry nature to it. There's a certain uh, media pull that goes with it that enriches the sport outside of the States, actually. And, and I think that, to me, is the bigger, the bigger issue. We haven't had... Who was the last great American player? Uh, on the men's side? Yeah. All right, is it Sampras? Is it Courier? Is it Chang? Probably Sampras. Sampras. Maybe McEnroe before that. But, not, but there, aren't, there aren't a lot of them. Right. And, and I think it's time. And again, we've dominated women for so long because of the two sisters. <laughs> but can we really make a dent here? I think it's interesting. I think, I think it'll be fun to see if Sock has the, the momentum to go and get to where some other players haven't. You know, you mentioned a Chang. Uh, you mentioned a Courier, who was a, certainly a great player, but didn't have the staying power that some others had, that McEnroe had, that Connors had, that even Agassi had. Um, so it'll be interesting, but I think financially it's a draw for U.S. fans to watch other events and, for, and, and a media draw for, these, for, for, again, the Australian Open, the French Open, and Wimbledon. Yeah, and we'll have to see what happens long term. Remember we covered the Orlando new tennis development facility to cultivate young 12-year-old USTA players and turn them into world-class guys takes time and maybe sock is the guy that bridges the gap. Meanwhile, down in Melbourne, the equal prize money is really significant, meaning 32, right. $36 million of a total purse. And men's and women's, $2.7 right. apiece, equal, really good stuff. I think the prize money just shows you that you could talk about tennis in the U.S. flagging, but there's obviously the world market is, is tremendously strong in terms of the sponsorships that allow a, a tournament to pay this kind of money. That's fantastic, but I think as you get to the next level, there's going to be a lot more competition uh, in terms of rights and, and other things, and you kind of need some American heroes and villains to kind of leaven that out. Yeah, I think that's probably right. So let's go to Switzerland and European decision-making at FIFA, but let's all talk about the world's game, which is the World Cup. 32 to 48 teams, expanded field starting in 2026. Gianfani Infantino, the new head of the organization replacing Sepp Blatter, decided to have Eight groups advanced to the round of 16, the top two teams today. But what's going to happen is 16 groups of three teams going to 48, increases from 64 to 80 games, and it falls on maybe 2026, coincidentally, being where North America hosts Mexico, U.S., and Canada preparing to submit a joint bid. And if that's true, a billion dollars extra for the governing body. Some people are slamming it, but it's all about revenue and growing the game. Yeah, it's all about, if you look at it, it really is all about 
you know, the revenues that come outside of the stadium. Uh, it, it's a big move. You look at the NFL. The NFL will grow revenues based on engagement, meaning the, the, what's going on outside of the game, whether that's fantasy, whether that's tailgate, whether that's naming rights. You find the same thing now with World Cup. You know, your interview this week is with the IndyCar Association of North America, right? And they talk a lot about the festival being even more than the race. You know, they bring an event to a town. Same thing with the World Cup on exponential scale, right? So you add 12 teams, you add, you go up to 48 teams, and there is now that many more tourists from that many more countries with that many more silly hats and crazy shirts and, and diehard uh, loyalties coming to your venue to spend money. And, and that becomes, to me, when you look at sports, the, the tangential revenue streams or the non-game specific revenue streams are what's going to expand. And that's where you're going to find growth because the media rights market is so high right now. And I'm not saying it's tapped out, but your incremental growth there is, is not going to be what it's going to be in developing new revenue streams and alternate revenue streams. The more the mega nature of the event, the more it appeals across the border, the more it's tourism and television, the better it is for that country, that city. And that's exactly what we're seeing here because FIFA now increases the economic value of the World Cup right when they'll make decisions about 2026, whether it's North America or otherwise. And similarly, as you mentioned earlier, there are major events like IndyCar in Toronto, the Honda IndyCar Toronto, run by Jeff Atkinson, an annual event. Some people may know about IndyCar. It's an international event. North America, not as much, but clearly the guy has that experience, St. Pete, mid-Ohio. He's the guy that really decides, in, in many ways, the future of IndyCar, not in Indianapolis, but across the world. So Jeff Atkinson, the guy that runs it, here he is now. If mainstream sports are defined by how many zeros are attached to the economic impact of it, this is mainstream. So Jeff Atkinson, President of Honda Indy Toronto, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Awesome. So in a nutshell, Give me an idea generally, since it's international, out of, of IndyCar racing today, its health. We'll talk about the Toronto race a little later. Yeah, no, so IndyCar racing is very strong in, in North America and internationally. You know, the, the race series is televised to 185 countries worldwide, and for us, you know, we're so lucky to be able to attract a lot of those people to the city of Toronto come our July weekend. You know, we own races in St. Petersburg, Florida, in Mid-Ohio, with the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Cars in Toronto. And we look at the numbers, and just the international uh, and multinational presence is very important. You know, in, in St. Pete, we draw 49 of 50 states. In Toronto, it's about 10 of 13 provinces and territories. And that's on top of the international exposure. Economic impact. Do we have a standardized number that is a metric that's consistent over time as far as what the Indy race brings to Toronto? It varies race to race. You know, attendance has a big part of that. I think the big thing with us, before one ticket is sold, you have all the race teams coming to buy hotel rooms. They're going to our restaurants. And, and with that, you know, it's just not one race series. You know, the Verizon IndyCar series is our feature attraction, as is the NASCAR Pinty series. But there are four or five other sub series that support that weekend. So that number can vary for anywhere from basically $40 million to $50 million over a course of a three or four or five day uh, period. Now your entity, again, a little bit of understanding what your structure is. You own the race in Toronto and Ohio and Florida. Mm -hmm. So you have a good idea of the pulse of what open wheel racing looks like across North America. 
good shape, bad shape, improving shape, challenges? It's very much in improving shape. You know, I, I think the, the series has come a long way in the past decade. Uh, in 2008 was a milestone year uh, for the Verizon IndyCar Series when they merged with the Champ Car World Series. And I, I think since then, I think we've seen more American uh, drivers participate, which is key for the American markets. Are the demographics for IndyCar similar or different than NASCAR's demographics? You know, the, the demographics do vary a little bit, and we do have a NASCAR race at, at Mid-Ohio for the NASCAR Xfinity Series, so we can see how those events operate, uh, you know, but they, they do vary a little bit, but at the end of the day, there's still a core attribute that's similar, and that's they're a race fan. They're coming out to watch the sport that they cheer for. You can probably break down the race fans' uh, enjoyments uh, within that, but at the same time, you know, really, the demographic is going to be, it's going to skew male. It, it will, um, but, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, the IndyCar audience is probably a, a little bit uh, different than the, the NASCAR audience. Now, tell me how it all relates to Formula One. Well, you know, Formula One is, is a different event in a nutshell. Uh, you know, they, uh, I think, like IndyCar, uh, attract a, a worldwide audience. F1 in its own landscape is very worldwide, whereas IndyCar, uh, they don't have any international races uh, right now, but that's something they've talked about wanting to uh, get back in. Canada's their only international race, and they very much view Canada as a North American race. So uh, F1's definitely on a different level. Um, but at the same time, you know, IndyCar very much uh, uh, creates and has a core group, a fan base, just like F1 has. But they're just different groups of people. Give me the, in a nutshell, without a kind of woe is me, look at all the work I've got to do. But I don't think people understand the nature of putting on a street race in the middle of a downtown to hold how many spectators? Over 103,000. All right, explain how you sleep at night before that event. Well, it, it's tough. You know, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a weird business model, unlike some of the other sports where you have an arena to play in. Yeah. You know, we build our event from the ground up, uh, especially in St. Petersburg and Toronto. So you know, for us, it, it really comes down to how do we create as little impact on the community as possible. So, you know, a lot of things we have done here is uh, in Toronto is to really do our uh, construction overnight so we're not impacting the traffic as, we, uh, as we're building our racetrack. And then when it's time that the race is around, you know, the fans really embrace the event and come out to celebrate uh, this great, wonderful community event. So we're very cognizant of how we're impacting the community, and we very much want to celebrate with the people that live down here, and the event's a great channel to do so. Is there some kind of a synergy between presidents or heads of respective large events in a community? Do you talk to the Pan Am Games organizers two years ago? Do you talk to the owners of the Raptors and the Leafs, etc., on a regular basis? Is there, is there a best practices kind of uh, uh, process? Yeah, I think the best practices is just trying to be aware of what's going on around you. Yeah. And, and that can really be, you know, what's going around in the United States, in Canada, worldwide. What are the trends? What are you seeing? And each property is very much different. The three races that we own, uh, they all the same attribute, and that's IndyCar. But mm -hmm. for us, uh, the markets are all three yeah. different markets in terms of demographics. Uh, Toronto skews a little bit younger, definitely more international flavor. So the way you market to a Toronto event is very different to how you market a St. Petersburg event. So when you look at the other events in the community and around the world and, and throughout North America, you really try to you know absorb and, and be a sponge when you're communicating with other leaders in the community to see what best practices are uh, so you can uh, elevate your event. Everybody is worried about the... Uh, reduction in ratings. NFL's uh, an example. I'm not sure, nobody's sure if it was the election or if it's the teams and all of that. 
is there a general concern across sports promoters that people are finding other things to do, or is that not the case? I think we're all concerned with the changing landscape of TV, but at the same time, I think some of the viewing habits are changing. I think people are still tuning into the TV. They might not be watching for the entire duration. They might be watching on their mobile device, which is definitely a, you know, a very big trend now, especially with some demographic that we wanted to capture. Um, but I think the thing about our event that's really different than some of the other events, we're not reliant on TV because we have a festival. Unlike the arena sports that you're there just there to watch the game, you're there to, at our events to interact with products, different activations, interactive exhibits, and that's just so key to our brand. So if we're out trying to price a sign for the broadcast, that's great, but the activation that a sponsor is going to activate on your event site, that holds a significant value as part of that partnership. Part of a downtown auto race promoter is the best seats in the house you can't control because if you're on a law firm 35th floor, you can't get access to that, but boy, those people really enjoy watching you, don't they? They, they do, and, th and that's where, you know, whether people are attending the event or maybe watching from afar, we want people to think positively about, about us and have a good time surrounding the activities with the event, whether it be down at Exhibition Place or in the city of Toronto. Where is the business of open-wheel racing 10 years from now? You know, I, I think open-wheel racing is very much on a growth, growth phase. And I, I really think, you know, the technologies continue to change. You know, innovation has been a key part of open-wheel racing over the years. And I, I think as we grow and have successful promoters uh, and successful race teams and successful series, you know, I think we can grow together. You know, we're, as a company, Green Savvy Racing Promotions, we're very eager to grow the sport. And we uh, apply, you know, the efficiencies and the economies of scale at our St. Petersburg property, our Toronto property, and Middle House Sports Car Course. So we have the passion to grow the sport. The series very much have the passion to grow their end of the thing. And the race teams do as well. So if, the, if it fires and part on the race punt on all cylinders, we can grow this together. And it's definitely on the right path. Jeff Atkinson, really appreciate the time. The only kind of event that will allow you to actually Go through red lights in the middle of a downtown metropolitan area and love it. Really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you very much. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. <laughs>